Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. I'll pick up the reading in Acts chapter 13, a few verses here, starting at verse 36. And the text says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, that would be Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that would be Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, if one, even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are talking about several ideas here, and if you weren't with us the last couple weeks, Paul started a preaching message in the city of Antioch, not the Antioch he was sent from, but another Antioch, one of 14 other cities named Antioch in biblical times. And Paul started that message, and so we're kind of concluding that message this morning. But we learned several things in this particular lesson about giving the gospel. And if for just a moment I can address the younger kids that are here, Okay? And maybe, well, I'm not addressing them. I'm addressing their parents. Okay, so that just, I'm not even going to be subversive about it. I'm just going to tell you a story. Okay? I had a friend years ago who told me that he was speaking. He had a, he had a, he, he, he had a friend who was a father of a young child. And the father spoke of, of, of interacting with the child and being concerned that the child had Christian friends. And so as they were talking about this, the child was about five or six years old, they're talking about the fact that he didn't, he didn't have any Christian friends, and the little boy says to his dad, but dad, so-and-so just became a Christian, to which the father said, wait a minute, I didn't know he was a Christian, and the five-year-old child says, yeah, I, I just led him to Christ, okay, last week, to which the father said, what do you mean you led him to Christ? To which the child said, what's the big deal, Dad? You do this all the time, right? Ah, the children who are sitting here, parents, do they know you to be a giver of the gospel, right? Is that something that they would naturally do because they've seen you do that? That's why I said it's, I was telling the kids the story, but it's really for the parents, Okay. And for those of you who are here and may not be parents, just a reminder, would people know you to be a giver of the gospel? All right. 
because that's what's going on here. So with that in mind, let's just talk about how the Apostle Paul does it. There's three things I want you to see in the text. Number one, don't rush the gospel. Number two, don't downplay the truths of forgiveness. Number three, don't be discouraged when not all believe, okay? So just say those with me, all right? So kids, if you can read, give it to me here too. Okay, here we go. Number one, don't rush the gospel. Number two, don't downplay the truths of forgiveness. Number three, don't be discouraged when not all believe. And here's the reason you don't wanna rush the gospel. Because God is often working in the least likely. I mean by that, that if you see a person and you say they'd never believe the gospel, okay, why would I share with them what Jesus did? Because there's no way they're going to believe. I'm going to tell you that this passage teaches you one thing, that the religious leaders, the Jewish people, those who were Jewish here and had grown up knowing the Old Testament and seeing the prophecies of Jesus, they were the ones who are about to turn their back on the gospel and the Gentiles, those you would never think would believe who are pagans, are going to come in mass to the gospel. And this is a great reminder to us that God is working in the least likely. So don't judge someone by their outer appearance because God may be working in their heart in a way that you may not have thought about. Now, here's the other thing. Notice this real quickly. That when Paul gave the gospel in Acts 13, verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Now, this is important. They said, hey, listen, we're going to gather next week. Can you hang around? Okay. And Paul says, sure, I'll hang around. You say, well, why didn't they just keep talking about it? Because these people had work to do, right? They had things to do. They had crops to plant. They had other things that had to be going on. But they said, if you'll stay around, we'll stay around and we'll come back. We want to hear more of this at the next Sabbath. And I notice that by the time I get to verse 48 in the text, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. These people were waiting on the outskirts to respond. And that's why we say we don't want to rush the gospel. We, now, there are times, I get it, when you have a minimal conversation with someone and that's all you're going to see. But if you can develop an ongoing relationship with someone for the possibility or the opportunity of sharing Christ with them, then take your time to do that. Develop the relationship. Paul doesn't rush until they drive him out of town here in a second, okay? And here, there's some steps about how we're going to do this. Build an understanding from the scriptures. So when you're talking to someone, make sure that you stop and just say, hey, this is what the scriptures say. And, and I, you can see that if you go back into the earlier passage we were speaking of uh, a week ago. You can see that because back in, verse, um, back in verse 17, when Paul begins to address these people in the synagogue, he starts way back with how God chose their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they, how they spent 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites did, and how they came into the land of Canaan, and, and how all of this took 450 years. Paul starts clear back here explaining the Bible. This is so important, just know this, that when you and I have a window to share the gospel, it's easy for us to maybe kind of slip it conversationally into our opinion. I just want to tell you, the quicker you can get them to the Bible, that's where the authority is, the stronger the presentation of the gospel. I love to tell illustrations and stories. I bet you didn't know that, right? But I'm full of stories. And it's easy for me when I'm talking with someone about the gospel to, to kick over into an illustration or story because that story might, in my mind, bring greater clarity. But I just want to tell you, it's never as powerful as when I just open up the Bible 
and say, hey, look at this verse, Romans 5, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And sometimes I'll even have them read it, right, because they're reading it and they're looking at it and saying, wow, like that's the Bible. That's right. Don't assume that most of the people you're trying to share with have ever read their Bible. But many believe that there's something special about the book. So when you open it up and you turn it to them to read, they're hearing God speak to them. Build an understanding from the scriptures, not just from your experience. Here's the second one. Get to the good news of what Jesus did. At some stage, get to the good news of what Jesus did. The first part of that message in Acts chapter 13, down through verse 24, is all about the Old Testament drifting over into some of who Jesus was. But I want you to take a look at verse 29. In 29, because this is the heart of what Jesus did. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. There's the heart of the gospel. And then God raised him from the dead. It sounds exactly, by the way, like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writing there says, I delivered unto you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That whole package is there. You say, say, well, why is the resurrection that important? I'll I'll get there in a second. But notice that the heart of the gospel is right there. Christ, who was without sin and guiltless, died in the place of those who had sinned. He was fully dead. He was laid in a tomb. And then God raised him from the dead. So there's your second idea. As quickly as possible, get to the good news of what Jesus did. Don't just talk about the Bible. Talk about what Jesus did. And then I notice this as well. There's one more thing he does, and that's in our text today. Invite them to believe in the forgiving God. That's right. Invite them to believe in the forgiving God because Paul then in this message shifts, and this is what he says. Let it be known to you, therefore, and whenever you see therefore, you say, well, why, what is therefore, therefore, okay? It's therefore what comes in front of it. All of that other stuff is there. That through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, here's the thing. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, constantly kind of pulls this thread of forgiveness through. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem to do that so much. He uses a different word. He uses the word justification. So when you get into Paul's writing, you read a lot about we were justified by faith in Christ. In other words, we, we were justified. That is, our sins were put to Christ's account. His righteousness was put to our account. All of that's going on in the process of justification. In a sense, these things are very similar. You and I have to be forgiven our debt, but with Christ, we actually receive his righteousness, which means that when God looks at you as a believer, he doesn't just see somebody who's neutral, who's grayed out because they don't have sin against them, but he sees someone who is literally shining with the righteousness of Christ. That forgiveness matters. So let me just talk about that for a moment because you'll notice that the second idea was this. Don't downplay the truths about forgiveness. Now, I'm going to kind of come into this backwards for a second because we tend to think of forgiveness as the one who is doing the forgiving. I want you to think about it as the one who is in need of the forgiveness. The reason the gospel is hard for many people to swallow is because pride is existing in all of us and we are always seeking credit. 
One of our elders is, communicates this over and over again, that the reason the gospel is hard to believe is because everybody would rather say that they have done some good works that get some kind of credit. Like even if it's just a little bit, we just want a little bit of credit, right? And you know that, don't you? Because if you've ever done a kind deed or a good deed for someone and they didn't notice, okay, just be honest, doesn't that kind of bother you a little bit? Like... I mean, you did one that they should have noticed, right? Like imagine momentarily that you're standing in CVS at the counter and there's a whole line of people behind you, right? And uh, you're, you're there and you've been waiting a while, but all of a sudden you just step aside and say, why don't you go? And then the next person comes up and they say, no, you go, no, no why don't you go? And you let like 20 people go and not one of them says thank you. Okay. Wouldn't that begin to bother you a bit? Okay, maybe you're more righteous than I am, all right? Uh, Just think about it. At which stage would it bother you? Like the first person or the second person or the third person or the fourth person? Would it not start to bother you? Because all of us want credit in some way for even the smallest things we do. And that's, you're you're not gonna be able to grasp the need for forgiveness as long as you're thinking you have to have some degree of credit. Let me talk about that. Here we go. Pride is always seeking credit. Here's the thing you need to know about the resurrection. The resurrection verifies Christ's innocent death and our need. Okay. The resurrection verifies Christ's innocent death and our need. Now remember, in our text, this is what he says. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Now, just for a moment, ponder this thought. That the moment physically the body dies, it begins to decay. It just begins to decay. But Christ does not see corruption. He's in the grave for three days, and then he's going to come back to life. The physical body would have been decaying and, except for the fact that God is going to raise Christ from the dead so that body doesn't decay, and then one day it comes back to life. But I want you to see why it doesn't decay. Because Paul is quoting from Romans chapter 16, verse 10, which is written a 1,000 years before Christ's body is placed into that tomb. And this is what we read, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the grave, or let your holy one see corruption. See how Psalm 16 inserted that phrase. Christ is the holy one. He is the one who is innocent. And by the way, everybody who was living in biblical times knew this. The religious leaders knew this. They knew they lied about Christ, and he hadn't done anything they said about him because even the witnesses, false witnesses, couldn't get their stories together. I mean, it was like a charade kind of thing. Like, all of that's happening. The religious leaders knew he was innocent. Pilate knew he was innocent. The people knew he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent. He had never sinned. The Holy One wouldn't see corruption. And so, that's important because of what's coming next. When you and I want to take credit for something we have done, when we want to get the credit for what, what we've done, and pride kind of inserts its head there and we say, I just, I just want some credit, okay? The moment we're thinking that thought, we're forgetting that there was only one person on the face of the planet who was fully holy, fully innocent, fully without guilt, and that one died. Forgiveness... The forgiveness offer confirms our wrongdoing and our need. Now, I just kind of need to unpack this for a little bit, okay? The forgiveness offer confirms our wrongdoing and our need. And notice how the text says this. 
In Acts chapter 13, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins, that is through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now watch what it does at the end of this. Could not, we could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let me explain that. Moses' law includes a number of things in the Old Testament, but it includes the Ten Commandments. And what the Bible is saying here is, listen, you have broken something in that list. You have broken some of the law of Moses. You couldn't do enough good things to overcome the things that you had done that were wrong, which means we're in need of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness is nothing more than the, than the acknowledgement of a debt and the other person whom we owe the debt to forgiving that debt. But if you don't acknowledge the debt, how is forgiveness even possible? Let me see if I can explain it this way. Um, let me talk to the kids who are here again, okay? Um, just look up here real quick. If you're normally out in your other program, but you're here, how many of you know from time to time that there may be something you've done that's wrong or disobeyed your parents? Can I see your hands? Okay. Okay. Like every hand should be up, okay? I'm looking. I'm not seeing. I'm thinking some mom or dad is about to raise a child's hand here, Okay. Okay, guess what? Kids, you can put your hands down. Guess what? Watch this. Watch this, okay? Moms and dads, how many of you know there's something you have done that's wrong in your past? Whoa, look at that. All the hands go up. Perfect, perfect. Okay, I should have taken a vote right there for whatever I... uh, um, Here's the point. We know that we've done wrong, and that's why we come acknowledging that we are in need of forgiveness. We need someone to forgive the debt. We acknowledge that we could not perfectly keep the law of Moses, and we owe a debt. You see, forgiveness, the forgiveness offer, that is, forgiveness is granted through this man, Jesus, confirms our wrongdoing and our need. Let me share with you a story that communicates that, I think, so well. A number of years ago, I came upon this story in an old Chuck Swindoll book, one of my favorite stories. It's about a young man um, who, whose name is Aaron, though that's not his real name, but Swindoll claims that he's just using a name to conceal the young man's identity. He says, uh, this man was praying, he was in Chicago, and he was praying about a ministry he might have with troubled teens. And he checked with churches, nothing happened. He checked with ministry opportunities, nothing happened. And so because he was a college kid and needed some money, he arranged to start driving a bus in Chicago. And when he did that, um, here is what we discover. I'll pick up this story here. After learning the route, this young man by the name of Calling Aaron was on his own, a rookie driver in a dangerous section of the city. And it wasn't long before Aaron realized just how dangerous his job really was because a small gang of tough kids spotted the young driver and began to take advantage of him. For several mornings in a row, they got on the bus, walked right past him without paying, ignored his warnings, and rode until they decided to get off, all the while making smart remarks to him and others on the bus. And finally, Aaron decided he'd had enough. So the next morning, after the gang got on as usual, Aaron saw a policeman on the next corner, so he pulled over and reported the offense. The officer told them to pay or get off. They paid, but unfortunately, the officer got off, and they stayed on. And when the bus turned another corner or two, the gang assaulted Aaron. And when he came to, blood was all over his shirt, two teeth were missing, both eyes were swollen, his money was gone, and the bus was empty. 
And after returning to the terminal and being given the weekend off, he spent the night in a little apartment, sank into his bed and stared at the ceiling in disbelief. How could these things happen? Confusion, anger, disillusionment added fuel to the fire of his physical pain. And on Monday morning, Aaron decided to press charges. And with the help of the officer who had encountered the gang and several who were willing to testify as witnesses against them, most of them were rounded up and taken to the local county jail. And within a few days, there was a hearing before the judge. Okay, you ready? Got it? So in order for that hearing to take place, Aaron's going to have to show up. In walked Aaron and his attorney, plus the angry gang members who glared across the room in his direction. But suddenly, Aaron was seized with a whole new series of thoughts, not bitter ones, but compassionate ones. His heart went out to the guys who had attacked him. Under the Spirit's control, he no longer hated them. He pitied them. They needed help, not more hate. And what could he do or say? Suddenly, after there had been a plea of guilty, Aaron, to the surprise of his attorney and everyone else in the courtroom, stood to his feet and requested permission to speak. He looked at the judge, and this is what he said. Your Honor, I would like you to total up all the days of punishment against these men, all the time sentenced against them, and I request that you allow me to go to jail in their place. The judge didn't know whether to spit or wind his watch. Both attorneys were stunned. As Aaron looked over at the gang members whose mouths and eyes were wide open, he smiled and said quietly, it's because I forgive you. The dumbfounded judge, when he reached a level of composure, said rather firmly, young man, you're out of order. This sort of thing has never been done before. To which Aaron replied with genius insight, oh, yes, it has, your honor. Yes, it has. It happened over 19 centuries ago when a man from Galilee paid the penalty that all mankind deserved. And then for the next three or four minutes, without interruption, he explained how Jesus Christ died on our behalf, thereby proving God's love and forgiveness. He wasn't granted his request, but Aaron visited the gang members in jail and led most of them to faith in Christ and began a significant ministry to those on the south side of Chicago. Now, here's what you need to see, that Aaron understood the gospel, but the gang members understood their need. What if he had stood up and said, hey, listen, um, I want you to tally up the days and I'll spend the time in jail and the gang members stand up and say, we've done nothing wrong. Why do we even need to go to jail? In order to understand the forgiveness, you must understand that there is a prerequisite to forgiveness. It is guilt. You and I are guilty. We are in debt to the creator of the universe. Forgiveness, the forgiveness offer confirms our wrongdoing and our need. Which shouldn't surprise us then that not everybody's going to respond to it because some people are not going to respond to the fact that they think they've done anything wrong. And and by the way, it's not a secret that our culture is actively, aggressively trying to demonstrate that everything that the Bible calls is wrong isn't wrong, right? I want you to understand that that is a theological vein that's running through our culture because if nothing is wrong then guess what? If nothing's wrong, then forgiveness isn't needed. But the moment we acknowledge that we have done wrong and that we we are in need, that we do need forgiveness, is the moment that we begin to see our need for a Savior, which is why you cannot downplay the truths of forgiveness. 
which means there is guilt or debt, and that's why forgiveness is necessary. Finally, note this in the text, Acts chapter 13. When it speaks of that forgiveness, it goes on to say that they were freed from the law of Moses, but notice this as well. The hard heart warning reveals pride's stubborn resistance and our need. In Acts chapter 13, immediately after giving the gospel, Paul inserts this warning. It almost doesn't make sense. He says, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul says, listen, I'm telling you about the gospel. Some of you are going to mock it and walk away from it. Why does he add that factor after he's just spoken about forgiveness? And the answer for that is this, that the warning reveals pride's stubborn resistance and our need, that in a person's prideful spirit, they will refuse to acknowledge they have a need. Pride is always seeking credit. The resurrection verifies Christ's innocence. The forgiveness offer confirms we've done wrong and we're in need. And the hard-hearted warning reveals pride's stubborn resistance and our need. And that brings us to this last one. Here it is. Don't be discouraged when not all believe. The gospel brings both acceptance and rejection. The gospel brings both acceptance and rejection. I have a good friend who, for his entire life, has been ministering the gospel in New York City as a street preacher. Like, that's what he does. He goes into New York City, and he does street preaching. He he looks for opportunities to just set, set up a paint board in the park, and he starts to talk, and he starts to gather a crowd. And he gives out gospel tracts whenever he can have a chance. And I ask him, when uh, September 11th happened, I said, hey, did that open up, when that attack happened in New York City, I said, did that open up <clears throat> greater opportunities for the gospel or less opportunities? And this is what he said. He said, it just made it a lot more clear who was willing to receive and who wasn't. He said, Phil, when I used to give out, prior to 9-11, when I used to give out like a gospel presentation or something, I'd hand them something, they'd look at it, and they'd just toss it, look at it, toss it, look at it, toss it. Someone'd look at it and read it. He said, now what they would do is they would look at it and devour it, or they would look at it, they would crumple it up and put it in my face and say, what kind of God would do this? Okay. He said, you would not believe how stark it made it. It was no longer kind of casual it was we accept or we reject. And here's the point. The gospel brings acceptance or the gospel brings rejection. So in our text, this is what we discover. For those who see their sin, the gospel is good news and they come running, okay? For those who see their sin and their need, the gospel is good news and they come running. In fact, I find that in Acts 13, verse uh, 48. In Acts 13, verse 48, this is what we read. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There it is. In fact, when I look at these action words regarding the Gentiles, this is what I read. Rejoicing, glorifying, down in verse 52, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, a little earlier, they were begging for the gospel to be told. That's what it looks like to come running to Christ, okay? I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. And once I learn enough to believe, I want to believe, and then I'm filled with joy and full of the Holy Spirit, all of that's going on. But there's another group here in this passage that should be open. They're the religious people. 
they're the ones that should be responsive, but they don't see their sin. And because they don't see their sin, the gospel appears to them unnecessary, but their sinful responses reveal otherwise they are in need. I love this. I don't know why I never saw this before in the biblical text, but those who don't think they need Christ because they consider that they've done enough good works, everybody watching them knows that they haven't done enough good works, that there's arrogance there, that there's pride there, that there's a lack of humility there. When someone says, I don't need Jesus, I'm going to do this on my own, we all look and say, I think you need Jesus, (laughs) okay, right? That's the point. They're in need and they don't even know it. Hear the contrast of the language that's used of them. They were, in verse 45, filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Down a little later, they stirred up persecution. They drove Paul out of the district. Okay. Just for a moment, see those contrasts. One group of people who respond to the gospel, they're filled with the Spirit. They can't get enough. They're running. They're glorifying God. They're full of joy. The other are just angry, jealous people. And you would think, wouldn't you, that the one group that would be the most religious would be the group that would be the most responsive to the gospel. But to the contrary, in their self-righteousness, they don't think they need him. Here's another way to say this. There is no middle ground with the true gospel. Either there brings acceptance or rejection. There is no middle ground. There is no ho-hum, okay? You either look at what Christ did on the cross and you say, wow, that is incredible love and I am in need of that forgiveness. Or you say, no thanks, I think I got this covered on my own. There is no middle ground with the true gospel. Either there brings acceptance or rejection. And what we want to do is accept and share that with others. We live in a pretty cool place. I, you've heard me reference uh, Fellowship Bible Church sits opposite of a peach orchard, right? So if you are paying attention in the winter of the, of the year, you'll see they're out there whacking those branches down, pruning, pruning, pruning. And then right around Easter, you see that there's flowers, like all, like acres of flowers. It's one of the most beautiful corners in all of Gloucester County, okay? Um, particularly if you get here early in the morning and the mist is kind of rising. It's just really beautiful. But then, and they just harvested them, there's a fruitfulness of the peaches. Ready for this? There is also, on the other corner, a cornfield. Now, I know, we live in South Jersey. A number of years ago, I was traveling someplace, and I said, hey, I don't know where your house is. And they said, I think I'm lost. And this is before I had my GPS working. And I said, I think I'm lost. And that's how old I am, for those of you who are here. Um, and and she, said, she says to me, no, that's okay. I can tell you where you are. Are you at an intersection? I said, I'm at an intersection. She said, is there a cornfield? I said, yes, there's a cornfield on every corner. Okay. This isn't helping, right? There's a cornfield opposite of us. Did you know that for every kernel of corn that you drop in the ground, it grows a stalk of corn that generates a, a, an ear of corn that generates 800 kernels, one to 800. Okay. Now, for just a moment, imagine what happens if you take those 800 kernels and you replant them. You suddenly have... 640,000 kernels, okay? Let that thought settle in. God did not give you the gospel so that you could just take the gospel to yourself 
and never share it with somebody else. But if you share it with somebody else and it reproduces in them and they share it with someone else and it reproduces in them, that's the beauty of the gospel. It is a message that all need and as we respond to it, others can share it too. That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit in our closing this morning. Kids, if you're with us, we always do something at the end where some of our people have been serving or where we're gonna pray or where we're gonna sing together or something. But today we get a chance to hear from some of our young people and one of our young people that was over in South Africa and some of our guys who went to prison just for the opportunity to share the gospel. So we get a chance to do that together. Father, we are thankful for your word this morning for the truth that is here, for the fact that we are in need of forgiveness. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us walk in a way that we would walk in humility, knowing our great need. And we are so thankful that you sent us Jesus who died in our place and rose again from the dead so that we would know that his death was sufficient to pay what we owed. The Bible just says over and over again that All that is asked of us is that we believe that Jesus did that for us. And so I pray that regardless of age this morning, it would cause us to say that's a truth. I believe that Jesus did that for me. May we repent, may we turn to you, may we grow in Christ as well. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.